Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Elizabeth Reese. I'm Marjorie Punnett. This is episode 109 of Best to the Nest. Doesn't it sound good? This is the podcast that's all about creating strong, comfortable, beautiful nests that prepare us to fly. Okay, today, Marjorie, we are talking about my very favorite place. Where is my very favorite place? The kitchen. The kitchen. So the theme of today's episode is home is where the kitchen is. And we're going to talk to a woman, Amy Thielen, who I know you're going to love. And Amy has written one of my favorite cookbooks and also one of my favorite food memoirs. And what is the consistent thread in her life is the kitchen. And sometimes it's a really high-stress restaurant kitchen. Sometimes it's a tiny New York apartment kitchen. And sometimes it's a kitchen in a cabin in northern Minnesota with no electricity. So... She has lived through a variety of kitchens, and I think all of us, as you move from place to place, the kitchen is totally the heart of the home. It's where everything Mm. happens in the home. It's where Marjorie nearly burns down her apartment (laughs) by forgetting a pot of apple cider (laughs) on the stove. But you know, it's the kitchen is the heart of the home, and I do believe that, and I think that was my greatest error as a mother. Oh, Marjorie. Was that I did not make the kitchen the heart of the home. The Highland Grill in St. Paul <laughs> was the heart of our home. <laughs> they have a kitchen there. It's still good. It's a kitchen. We ate out a lot. But my husband's a decent cook, but as you know, Elizabeth, I really don't cook. And what's so funny is I have raised two men... And I think it's because of my husband's influence that have made the kitchen the heart of their homes. Yes. And so it sort of it, it went from my husband to them. And so I don't feel huge guilt. But what I do know is I missed an opportunity through food to give them some really strong food memories. Yeah. I think most of their food memories, like I said, really do come from the Highland Grill. Well, but that's okay. That's okay. That's totally okay. But I do think that if you can create a space where you love to cook. I get that not everybody loves to cook, right? I mean, Mm. I love to cook, but I fully understand that not everybody does. That being said, I think a lot of cooking and liking cooking has to do with confidence and then delivering something great. And I think once you build that confidence in the kitchen, then by cooking every day, you get a daily dose of creativity and a daily dose of connection with the people that you're feeding. So that's that's the piece. That's the piece that I have grown to appreciate and love, especially because I do food TV here and I talk to so many chefs. There is something about that moment of sharing what you've created. And I see it in my son. He made the most amazing meatballs for me last night. Yes. And it was he waited till I got home. I got home at seven from work. He had waited to eat with me because he wanted to share the experience of what he had created. 
And I love that. I love that. It's so good. Okay, well, you talk to chefs. You're apparently living with a chef, and now you're going to talk to another <laughs> chef today. I know. I'm excited. And this is Amy Thielen. So Amy Thielen is a chef. She's a TV cook. She's a two-times James Beard award-winning writer. Oh, her Ooh. writing is so good. So the books I was talking about, The New Midwestern Table is a cookbook, and then her memoir is called Give a Girl a Knife. I've talked about it on Best to the Nest before. And after 10 years cooking in New York City restaurants, Amy returned to northern Minnesota with her artist husband, Aaron, to a rural Park Rapids home that he built. She's lived with no electricity, guys. She writes, cooks, and gardens, (laughs) and she is at home in the kitchen. And I'm so happy that Amy is here with us on Best to the Nest. Hi, Amy. Hey, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you guys. Oh, we're really, really happy that you are here. We've had Amy cook in our kitchen on Twin Cities Live several times. I was a big fan of her show on Food Network, and I try to read everything that she writes. And <laughs> I thought about, you know, this title, Home is Where the Kitchen Is. And that's, it just like popped into my mind when I was preparing for our conversation today. And I thought about this with you, Amy, because you you are at home whenever you're in a kitchen. Is that right? Oh, definitely. I've lived in a few different places, and it's the most consistent part of my life because I've lived in very rural environments and very urban environments, and then back again now I live in a in northern Minnesota out in the middle of the woods. Mm-hmm. So the kitchen is what's really stuck with me for sure. That practice or that daily practice of cooking. I'm two chapters into your memoir and I love mm-hmm. already the way you were talking about the continuity between the way that your grandmother cooked to your mother mm-hmm. to you. And I think when I talk about sort of my guilt as a mother and not passing any of that on, it wasn't passed to me. So, like, my grandmother wasn't a cook. My yeah. mother wasn't a cook. Yeah. And I I mm-hmm. crave that experience now that I've started to know more people who love to cook and I meet more chefs. I think that's such a special thing for people to hear that power of connectivity to the generations before you. Can you talk about that a little bit? Cause I think it's so cool. Yeah. I mean, I pay a lot of tribute to my grandma and my mom. My mom was a really good cook. My grandma was a great cook. I, I do. I love thinking about what I've inherited from them, which is a ton a lot of little skills that you don't realize that you're getting, yeah. right. you know, just by watching and doing. But the thing is, you know, it's so interesting because I'm also like a women's studies minor in college. <laughs> I have a degree in feminism, right? Yes, and, right. And so it, there's a certain like at odds, I feel a little bit at odds sometimes with that, just thinking about that female heritage and how important it is, but at the same time realizing that a lot of women, a couple generations back, they... They stopped teaching their girls specifically to cook like that because they yep. didn't want them to have that burden. Yeah. yeah, And it's a necessary correction. And, yes, we lost a lot of stuff, but it had to happen. So yep. I'm, it's a real, that's a really interesting and complicated thing for me. And I'm glad that I learned all those things. But I don't, I don't begrudge those mothers of, you know, the 50s who thought, I'm not going to teach my, my girl yeah. how to how to cook or to make her think that this is what she has to do all of her life. Yeah. Yeah. Because that intention was good. And I don't, you think that was a lot in your family, Marjorie? That was, that was exactly the story with both my grandmother Mm -hmm. 
and my mother. It was a rejection, I think, of the kitchen as the place where they were supposed to be. For sure. And I, I appreciate that strain that I got from them. But at the same time, there is a little piece of me that looks at people who have that, like you said, those skills that came to you almost subconsciously. You know, they were just being, they were being modeled in front of you all of the time. And I think it's really cool because mm-hmm. I do, food is just such a great sense memory. It's such a, it can be such a happy memory, I think, for children. So I, I, I love that you have found a way to live both. I think you, I think you found the happy medium. But children can sometimes make you hate to cook. I just want to tell you this. So I have two of them that I live with, right? Two children. And then I have a husband. So I have two children and they are five and two and a half. And my daughter, Bernadette, is such a wonderful eater. I mean, she her favorite food, Amy, is spaghetti carbonara. She came on Twin Cities Live and oh, made her carbonara recipe yes, on the show. You, my son, Hank. He <laughs> loves that. favorite food is spaghetti carbonara. Dude, that's so oh, Look, they're oh, totally that. kindred spirits. I love it. So <laughs> she loves this, it's but but she does have this this and she's a kid so i get it but she will if i put something new in front of her it's immediately oh no oh no mama ah and and so i was saying recently to one of our cooking guests on twin cities live and then my co-host i was like you know totally get why some people start to hate cooking because like when I have run home from work and prioritize, I prioritized everything about the way that we live so that we can have dinner together and literally live in the home that I live in so that I have time to get home and make them dinner. And then I put something in front of them and I get that reaction. I'm like, man, this is so exhausting. And then of course, we always have the rule. You take one bite of everything on your plate. And if you don't like it, you are never forced to eat any more than one bite. And then we move forward. And then one. inevitably, she takes a bite and loves it. And, oh, mama, this is the best soup. Oh, you make the best soup. She, these meatballs are delicious. You know, she loves <laughs> it. But it's like that initial reaction that's so difficult. And then my co-host was saying to me, Steve goes, yeah, and you love to cook. Imagine if you don't love yeah. to cook, then you get that reaction, right. how you're like straight up hitting the drive through, don't care, not dealing with it. That's, right? how you end up, that's how you end up at the Highland Grill. <laughs> so, yes, yes. My son, he also had a really big pasta phase. I mean, he ate a lot, everything when he was little. And then he went into this phase of just wanting mac and cheese and homemade or box. Yeah. And it, it got to be this power struggle. And yeah. I finally, I realized I'm like, it's kind of, I mean, some kids just eat whatever and they'll eat their kale porridge or whatever. And it's <laughs> kale porridge. I want to see the rest. I want to see the recipe on that one, the <laughs> kale porridge. But it's their nature to not eat anything that you know some some vegetables taste really strong yeah and so i just i just took a step back and and didn't take it personally and stopped feeding them vegetables i swear to god for like almost two years <laughs> and, gave the vitamins. and i didn't even put it on his plate i'm like forget it no yeah. you want spaghetti carbonara you want potato soup with bacon great okay right. and then all of a sudden it when it was his in his power to do so he started saying, oh, can I have that cabbage? Can I have, I want some salad. And now he eats everything. Yeah. And raw oysters, but he still doesn't eat asparagus. And I think it's important to like develop a kid's sense of discernment. Sometimes they have kind of 
sensitive palates and maybe it's it's okay. It's like they're, it's their physiological nature. They're supposed to do that. Yeah. And I think we can learn a lot from that. You know, as you're talking about that, Amy, it makes me think of like, how could we translate that into adulthood where I think we get so worked up with food about what we should eat and what we shouldn't eat and mm-hmm. what's good for us and what's not and what we're restricting ourselves from, you know, all of these things. And then add into that the complication of the marketing of food to us and how just deceitful that can be and confusing it can be. And you, and when you watch your children and you sort of respect that their bodies are telling them what to do and they're listening to their bodies, it is a reminder mm-hmm. that we, we are going to want to eat and cook different things in different seasons, not only the seasons that are literally within the year, but the seasons of our lives. Well, I do think they're very good self-regulators. They they really are. And I think that's why it is important in one sense to make sure what you have in your house is something that's good for them to eat. Got to make sure that you've got all of the things in front of them that they want and they'll self-regulate pretty well, which is I'm glad like most mm-hmm. generations now, it's not about you have to finish everything on your plate. Yeah. You have to, because I just don't think that, I don't think that supports healthy eating. I think sort of take a bite, try it, see if you like it. If you want more, you can have more, but not sort of forcing them to eat. I, I don't think that's necessary. Oh, They'll eat yeah. when they need to. So I agree with you 100%. I mean, it should be taste and pleasure-led, yes. not what's right or wrong. Yeah. Or, I think that if you don't have a lot of processed food in the house, like I don't, sometimes I wish I would actually buy a little bit more. My husband's like, some people have like frozen tamales in the freezer, you know, where if we don't have anything to eat, I'm like, well, I've got potatoes and I've got lamb ribs and, you know. And yeah. I have but I think that it's, I just think that there's this thing now about good food and bad food and takes the place of almost like a religion. And I'm just, I'm not a cookbook author who is one of the healthy, you should do this and do right. I am... I'm not, I, I like butter, I like pleasurable things, and I really think that eating the vegetables, eat 40%, 50% of your daily thing is fruits and vegetables, you're going to be fine, and just, you know, don't worry about the butter, you know? Yeah, I know. Make it taste good. I think you're right. That's My husband always sense. will say, we have so much food in this house and we have nothing to eat. <laughs> like, because mm-hmm. what he means is, I don't have a single package of something that I can just pop open and eat, is what, is what know, right? he's saying. He gets all feisty about that. I want to talk about your kitchens, though, Amy, because when you, so you worked in these really, I mean, a New York City, any restaurant kitchen is a high stress environment. I think when you get to New York, it's, it's even more high stress just because people in New York oh, are yeah. naturally more high stressed because they don't see the earth or sky and so they're all stressed out (laughs) some strong feelings about new york oh i love new york so much i just can't do the living in new york thing i think it's like so great i just feel like don't you need to just spread your wings a little bit but so so that working and then loving cooking at home too i talked to some chefs who after cooking professionally for so many years that they get home and they just don't they don't want to do it and i get it do you did you ever Mm -hmm. feel that way yeah, that doesn't happen to me because it's it's been a long time. And, yeah. you know, I, I live out in the woods. I'm isolated, really, and it's very remote. There's no, no Thai takeout here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I mean and I've, I've been a civilian now for quite a while. So, if anything, I've probably lost a lot of my professional habits rather than gone more into them. I just think it's... At home, I have kind of a working, continuous thing going, and I think that's what makes the kitchen really feel alive. It's not about, like, 
making these super fancy meals every night. It's when you're cooking, maybe you're soaking beans for the next day. Like my, my sister-in-law came in and summer and she's like, you always have things soaking in bowls. What's going on here? You know? Oh, I love that though. And I do. I'm always thinking about tomorrow or the next day or, you know, and it, it's easier and more doable that way. If sometimes when you're just making dinner, like last night I made shepherd's pie and then I thought, well, I might as well cook these beets I have and then I'm going to marinate them for the week. Yeah. So it doesn't take that much more time to throw one more pot on the stove and do something for tomorrow. Oh my gosh, Amy, that's like the topic of your next book though. I mean, right there where it's like, and I (laughs) love the idea of keeping the kitchen alive. I mean, when you talk about like the things that you can have going, this is why I'm so like, I love having like bread dough going, or I I feel that same Mm -hmm. way about beans soaking or stock going in the slow cooker. Like I love walking Mm -hmm. in there and knowing when there are always things happening. It just feels better and less overwhelming. I think that's a really good message for the people who aren't inclined to be in the kitchen. It's I love that idea of the kitchen being alive because it takes away from someone and I'm not, I don't enjoy cooking. I never have. But just when you said Mm -hmm. that, that idea, my husband does. And so he does that a little bit. And like I said, my son does. We're sort of just keeping things moving along. But for people who are Mm -hmm. non, who really don't consider themselves cooks and don't have perhaps a husband that likes to cook, that would be a really great mindset to put yourself in to start liking the kitchen is that idea of one thing translating to the next, to the next, to the next. Because I think what gets mm-hmm. overwhelming for some people who don't like to cook is, oh, I've got to make dinner. Yeah. Oh, i got to make dinner tonight. And it's when you think about how many meals you have to plan, especially when you have young kids, you've got breakfast, lunch, and dinner. you got to plan all three. You do. You've got to make sure your kids have a good lunch. you got to make sure they get a good breakfast. But if you start to think about what do I have that's going to turn for the next day to the next day, that starts to feel more like a continuum as opposed to like, and I think a lot of people live in the sort of growling phase about having to cook dinner, not in the sort of joyous, oh, what can I provide for my family? I mean, Elizabeth and and I think, and Amy, you, I don't know that you guys are the norm. No, no, we're not. Yeah, way. I'm probably not. No, yeah, I'm no. not. Yeah, I'm totally <laughs> not. not. You are either. Yeah, I mean, yeah. my co-host Steve on. You know what you're saying, though, because when you're, you asked me about being a chef, and I, it's just, I think that there is a connection there, and it's. It's that people think people at home who are not chefs or don't have that kind of training, they're they're thinking they're recipe based, and so they're looking at recipes, saying, "Okay, I'm going to make these like chicken enchiladas or something, right?" Yeah. Right. And it's a it's a long it's a long recipe, and you have to get all the ingredients for it, and then you have to make it. Whereas a chef in a restaurant is looking at it more from a component standpoint, yes. where it's yes, they have very complex recipes, maybe even more so. But they're like, okay, we're going to bake the squash now, and then we're going to cook these potatoes. We're going to have this much of this. And so when I'm in the kitchen, that's where it's like I'm just going to take this buttercup squash that I have, and I'm going to split it, take the seeds out, and bake it upside down. And I don't know what I'm going to do with it tomorrow. Right. But it's so easy. People think, oh, you have to do all this stuff and put all these spices on it, which recipes would tell you to do, right? Right. They have you first, like, gutting it up and doing all this stuff to it. Whereas the truth is, all you need to do is, like, bake that squash yeah. or boil those potatoes or cook double the amount of rice so you have it for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yep. Where yep. it's real easy. It's just, like, the ingredient, water, and salt. That's so, so like good. My, the component thing is so good. Is It's a lot of – there's a lot of simple vegetables in it. 
So it's about entertaining. And so I'm talking about making a big meal and making a lot of food. But then sometimes you just have like boiled and buttered cabbage with a little bit of garlic butter on it. Yeah. And that's it. People love it. The way you're talking about that, when we go back to what we talked about earlier about feminism and women not being in the kitchen, mm-hmm. one of the things yeah. got lost in the feminist movement was kitchen management. You know, there used to be home ec courses where you yes. would learn. I know. Like my mom took home ec. She learned how to darn a sock. She learned how she learned the basic skills of running a home. We don't have to stay at home. But guess what? You still have to run a home. Somebody has to do somebody something has, at the house. Somebody, somebody, still, has, to do it. somebody has to do it. I and know. I love what you're talking about because, Amy, what you're talking about is you're taking the skills you learned in a professional kitchen. You're using those same professional skills in your home kitchen, which would benefit any woman or man who's trying to run their ki- their home kitchen because it does make it easier. I, I, I was telling Elizabeth yeah. earlier, I just interviewed a chef who we went actually to his home and he was making smoothies for his kids. He was just showing like how you could just pack so many nutrients in a smoothie. I mean, it was just sort of a sweet little thing and the kids were there and it was cute. But what he said was, like a chef, he has a cabinet that has all the smoothie ingredients. Yeah, it's right there. They're, it's all right there. So it's not like you're mm-hmm. searching for this or you're searching for that. And whatever's in the cabinet gets thrown in the smoothie and it's easy. And that doesn't seem probably to you like a big deal, Amy, or to you, Elizabeth, but to a lot of people managing your kitchen in that way for high efficiency, it just doesn't happen. And so it makes everything harder. Cooking double the amount of rice doesn't occur to a lot of people. It would to a chef. You know, you're trying to get ahead of the game. And so I think that's sort of an important thing you're talking about is components and management makes it easier to do it well. Oh, it's so true. So the two things I remember from home at class, you guys, and I took home at class. I didn't um, know they still had it. Yeah, they did. When, well, I, I'm not that young, so it was a long time ago that they had it. <laughs> I but, had home ec, too. Yeah, yeah, good. I remember. And, oh, you know, we live in the funny. Midwest, so they were probably like the last to let it go. But we... um. <laughs> I remember the smell when we learned how to do eggs, how to cook eggs. And I remember the smell of overcooked eggs permeating the building. (laughs) And so to this day, if I smell overcooked eggs, I am like brought back to home at class. And then I also remember one other thing, and I don't even remember the name of my home ec teacher, but I remember that part of home ec was learning, and you're talking about entertaining, Amy, but learning how to... Mm -hmm. Take the food that you've prepared in the pot and then put it in a lovely bowl and place it at the table. So we were expected to do that. That was like setting the table was part of home ec and then like sitting down and having it. And I remember. high heels. Yes, I know. We had to wear aprons and she passed out pearls. We all had to wear them. And we had a nice um, little flip in your hair. But I remember one of the kids saying like, why are we doing that? Why are we putting this in a, in a bowl? Now, now I have another dish to wash. Like this doesn't make sense. This is totally inefficient and doesn't make sense. And I remember the teacher saying, because presentation matters, that we worked on something and the way we are presenting it to the people that we're serving it to matters. And I literally think that every time I just put something in like a stainless steel pot on the on this table, I'm like, oh, dang. <laughs> That's an F in home ec. Isn't that f- those memories? What's so weird it's to so me? It's so funny. You guys, you guys are yeah, both I mean, younger. Home, than- I just put everything out in the pots. I mean, I move it from the stove to the counter. <laughs> there you go. I, don't know. For us, I don't know, ladies. You know? I don't know. I think the home ec teacher might be a little disappointed in that move. So, Amy, yeah. what are but, some you of the... For company, I'm really, I'm really into the. You know what matters is 
sometimes it's like if you have a too deep of a bowl, it'll steam over like yeah. a vegetable kind of overcook. So yeah. I really, I have like maybe 30 of these like kind of shallow platters that maybe it doesn't stay as hot, but it doesn't, it doesn't get ruined or overcooked or, and everything looks so nice on a big platter. Yes. Yes. You it know? does. So when I entertain and cook with, for, uh, have a dinner party, I just have a whole bunch of platters and I, you know, I'm so Midwestern, I still do a buffet line. Like, even for, oh, you know, a Friday night dinner. Is that terrible? No. No. That's no, fabulous. Because it feels like family. That just feels like family, I think. It I think totally that's does. You know, we were talking so much about this idea of sort of losing that connection with the kitchen and, and you know, for good reason. But now, yeah. as we kind of correct and mm-hmm. get back to that, Amy, you are telling, you're always telling such wonderful stories about food. And so I want to know from you kind of how, how that process works and how you're continually inspired by the connection that happens when you share food, you share stories, and then you take it one step further and share stories about food. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think I come from a kind of a long line of storytellers, really. My great grandpa was a like a like a small town newspaper kind of gossip columnist. You know how the newspapers oh, used to have uh, that's... little tiny towns. They would have yep. like you know the news from this little yep. town. Yeah, that's what he did, and he kind of became he was funny. <laughs> he would tease people in the paper. You know, that he would <laughs> oh, every that's day. So, so great. I, I come from a pretty small place, and then you know my grandmother and my mom. Everybody they they talk about food in a really evocative way. So it wasn't just that we ate a lot and were obsessed with food, but also that they would tell stories around it. And my grandmother would say, you say, well, how, how fine do I grind the poppy seeds for such and such dish? And she'd say, you grind them until they're as fine as snuff. You know? <laughs> like that. It was like really weird. And, and it was always like a story. Oh, that's so great. It is great. And it's so true. I mean, and that is how you pass down stories. And, and I, when you that's talk a, about sharing stories too that even have nothing to do with food, I am convinced that the mm-hmm. best things happen at the dinner table. Every night when Absolutely. we sit down at dinner and we don't have family dinner every single night because it sort of depends, but we say, what was the best part of your day? And my two year old now says, Mama, what's the best part of your day? Oh. <laughs> and oh, when I ask so him, I love that. Yeah, he'll say, I play with toys. I play in my classroom. I play in my hallway. You know, he, a lot, of, a lot of play going on there. A lot of play going on, but it is, um, it's a quick, fun way. It doesn't always turn into like this big conversation starter, but it's a quick way to just go, what was the best part of your day? And now it's fun as my kids are even just so little that when we sit down at the table together, the four of us, if we don't ask that question, one of them asks it. They expect that that exchange is going to happen at our dinner table. That's a, a very early form of a gratitude journal, Elizabeth. Oh, That's what's boy. beautiful about that. Right away, they have to look at what they're great. Really, it's a it's a, an extension of what they're grateful for in their day. I think that's really cool. And the fact that it's a tied now, that memory is tied to the dinner table. I think is pretty powerful too. I think that's great. It's been um, it's been fun, Amy. You recently did your kitchen, like redid it. And mm-hmm. um, it was fun for me to follow along because it was kind of the same time that I was doing my kitchen. And oh. your home in rural Minnesota is like so perfectly rustic. I just love all every element that you pull into it. So I, I do want to know from you, as you set up your kitchen, like what are the things that you really prioritized to make it 
work for you and feel like it reflected you and then the meals that you wanted to prepare there? Yeah. I mean, the the original house where I had my other kitchen, was the kitchen was really tiny, so I needed just more space. But I, my husband built that part of the house, and then he did a lot of the finishing in this new addition. But he built it, Marjorie. Are you hearing this? Her husband built her a I house. I, I love know. that so much. He we, built it without any power tools. Okay, that's what I love I most mean, of all. It was crazy. But he was like 24 years old. He's a sculptor. It was kind of a I don't know if it's like almost like an installation. He had all this. You know, it's very. It's very his style. Like our ceiling in that part, it has is rusty tin. Wow, it's very kind of unusual. So we had to make sure that this new kitchen flowed yeah. into Rust- that, <laughs> like the log space, which is like log lined. It's very rustic up north looking, I guess. For sure. But, so I just knew that I wanted a lot more storage space, and I also wanted to be able to have this big island where people nice. could sit. And it's like eleven feet, so it's like a it's like a bar basically. Yes. So you know, good. When, when people come for dinner parties, and I throw a lot of them, everybody just kind of sits up here and we eat. And and then I also have a I have a wood fired cook stove, which oh was nice on my wish list. And then and then I cut it because it was too expensive. And then my my stepmom was like, "Oh no, you have to have that." And so she got it. And it's really it's the heart of our home. Really, it's we keep it going all winter day. You know, during the day, I just keep feeding that. That wood oh, stove. That's... And then, you know, it, it's got this little oven, and so that's where I, like, bake extra potatoes or the squash or the whatever. You kind of throw stuff in there. Oh, my gosh. Oh, that's talk like about, a dream. Yeah, and talk about having your I kitchen know, feel really alive. I, I, I can't believe it's my life. I oh. have to say sometimes I'm really <laughs> grateful for, for that wood cook stove. It's very cool. It is so great. But that's how your kitchen is alive, is that it's always crackling and moving and things are happening and working. I think it's so... Great and so, so beautiful. So, Amy, who's coming? You live out in the middle of, of I don't want to say nowhere because you are somewhere, but you're living in a very <laughs> rural place. Yeah. Who's coming so to I'm these dinner parties? five minutes from a grocery store. So. Oh, right. So who's coming to these dinner parties that you're throwing all the time? Oh, well, there's so many amazing people out here. There's really a lot of cool people. Oh, that's um, so great. Yeah, and everybody, this is northern minnesota and people do kind of live far away from one another i also have neighbors right here in two inlets and everybody has all these great food stories most of my friends grow their own gardens and so there's a lot of in-house entertaining up here yeah so that's wonderful we go to other people's dinner parties people have annual parties horseradish parties (laughs) you know somebody else has the solstice party you know, we have to have the New Year's party. If we canceled it, I think maybe like 20 people would just show up anyway because <laughs> the word didn't get to them, you know. Right. But yeah, there's a lot of in-house entertaining and people cook for one another because there aren't very many restaurants and the restaurants are also in town. Yeah. Right. So so there's just a lot of going to so-and-so's house. People stop by. Yeah. That's actually really Great. special. I think That's it's actually amazing. Really special. I love it so much because when we... We have loved, we moved into a bigger house a little over a year ago, and we have people over all the time, and we have people come and stay with us, and, you know, we mm-hmm. we bought the house because we, like, fell in love with the guest space almost more than anything else, so we knew mm-hmm. that our friends and their families could come and stay with us, and and I think that's such... That is how you really get to know people is spending time with them in your home. and in their homes. In their and when you're invited to someone's home, what a great honor that is. 
And when you invite people into your home, you are showing them a side of you that they wouldn't get if you're meeting at a bar or a restaurant or wherever. And there's just like an intimacy to that that's really so lovely. I think people get really intimidated by having people over. The more you do it, and like I'm saying, up here, it's such a common thing that you realize that it doesn't have to be a big show every single time you yes. do it. Sometimes you can just have people over for soup and bread. Yes. Yeah, and I love that. It doesn't that. have to be much. And when you go to somebody's house, like, gosh, everything you eat in somebody else's house tastes so good, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> better over there. <laughs> I know. It's like the philosophy of a, like a sandwich is always better when someone else makes <laughs> it for you. 100%. You could put the same ingredients on it, but if someone else made it for you and presented it to you, it tastes so much better than if you made it yourself. <laughs> I love eating out. I I love, I do. I just, I love going to restaurants, but I will say going to a great dinner party, hands down, I leave more full in, in every way when I leave somebody's home than when I leave a restaurant. Yeah. It's so, it's so true. Amy, you are so fun to talk to. Tell us when your next book is coming out. When can we look for it? Do you have a title? Well, I can't really share the title because we haven't approved it, Okay, but uh, it's a book about entertaining and it's going to come out next. It's going to come out the fall of 2021 Great. from W.W. Norton. And we just did all of the photo shoots. I think it's going to be so beautiful. I'm so excited about it. It's going to be a big book with lots of uh, recipes that are in menus, grouped by menus. Oh, so, my gosh. Like I said, it, most of the recipes are served six to eight, but there are a couple of menus that serve even up to 20. Wow. Oh, that's so, fantastic. <laughs> Well, we you know, sort of hit people email and say, well, what am I going to make for my kid's graduation? Or, oh, you made that. Can we do this? And so I have some of those things, too. Oh, I love it, Amy. I can't wait. Okay, you have to promise us that you'll come back when the book comes out because we would love to talk about it and get a look at it. And if you want more of Amy's food, you have to get her book, The New Midwestern Table. You know that I think about your um, fried onion dip, like, daily. <laughs> it's it's one of my favorite things to make. It's like, you know the onion dip that you get in the plastic container that you dip Ruffles potatoes chips into? Amy mm-hmm. has a homemade version that is so freaking good. <laughs> it's unreal. And the book is beautiful. And everything you write about food and about anything, I want to be reading. So I'm just so happy that you took time to hang out with us today. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. This is so fun. I want you guys to be my phone friends. I'm yes. going to call you when call I'm us. <laughs> Call us anytime. And anytime. I'm telling you, I am making my way to your house for a dinner party, and I'm probably wow. going to sleep over. And so wow. I've been threatening Amy with this for years. Wow. She knows this I'm coming. So bold. <laughs> I've been inviting you for years, and we have guests. This is galore. Yes, you are. Anybody, you know, if, if you're up here, do let me know. Seriously, call me. I'm always good for dinner. I know. I love it. Maybe I'll bring Bernadette, yeah. and then we can have Bernadette and Hank have carbonara together. Oh, that's so oh, cute. Yes. Their first little dinner party. <laughs> oh, my God. It'd be adorable. So good. All right. Thank you, Amy. We love you. Thanks, have a great Amy. day. Yeah. It's so good to talk to you guys. Okay. You too. Bye. Thank Bye. you. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a review at Apple Podcasts. Oh, today, Elizabeth, it takes a village. We have the nicest email. She said, so frequently when I turn to your podcast, I gasp because the latest episode almost always speaks to something that's recently been on my mind. Not to overstate it, but the words divine interventions have come up in some of your past convos, and those words resonate with me and how I feel about this podcast. That is a very sweet thing. Thank you. That's so Thank you for the joy you're bringing 
to so many of us as we flow through this beautiful and complicated life together. Much love to you both and tons of appreciation extended for all you share and the fabulous guests you've introduced to this lovely podcast community. Oh, and I feel... I just thank you so much for those kind words. We They matter to us. Oh, they matter. They really do. Yeah, they really do. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Best to the Nest or go to besttothenest.com to subscribe to our newsletter. It's coming out in March. We promise. <laughs> it is. We are the podcast that brings you home. Yay. To be your best every day. You need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples... Temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.